Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. In this special crossover episode, join me and Steve Guerra of History of the Papacy podcast as we turn back the clock to 1494 and examine the Treaty of Tordesillas, sanctioned by Pope Julius II, which divided newly explored territories, including North America, between Portugal and Spain. I hope you enjoy the final part of this discussion. A pope did eventually ratify the treaty. Let's talk a bit about that pope, the famous Pope Julius II. He's another one of the great popes. His name previous to Pope Julius II was Giuliano della Rovere, and he was from the famous della Rovere family of Italy. He was the great warrior pope, and he fought wars all over central Italy to secure his secular domains of the papal states. So his real focus was never on what was going on much outside of his really narrow focus on central Italy. That was his main focus. Wasn't he also Michelangelo's pope that commissioned him to do the Sistine Chapel? And the movie with Charlton Heston, Julius was the pope played by Rex Harrison, based on a famous, famous book. And the movie was a big, big hit. It's a really good movie. It's a great movie. Charlton Heston in The Agony and Ecstasy. That was a big, big movie at the time based on a big book. Charlton Heston, Rex Harrison. It's all about the painting of the Sistine Chapel. And it's the battle of wills between Michelangelo, a young Michelangelo, and Pope Julius II, who is the warrior pope. And we see him fighting battles at the beginning of the movie. When and why did Pope Julius ratify this treaty? So that's a really good question. There's not a ton of information on that. Pope Julius did put his seal of approval on the treaty, like we said, with the A Quae Pro Bono Pacis in 1506. The thing was, Julius really wasn't involved in Spanish and Portuguese politics like Alexander VI was. The Portuguese and the Spanish were good with the treaty, and it didn't really remarkably change the balance of power between the two from that 1493 treaty. But there must have been some reason that they wanted to have it officially sanctioned by him. The end of Alexander's life, there was a lot of internal conflict there. Then Julius has a lot of problems he's dealing with. So it may have just taken time for this kind of not a huge change to the treaty to just work its way through the bureaucracy. There wasn't a big political intrigue or something really meaty or juicy like that for why Julius held out so long or why it took so long to get the official bull to legally recognize the treaty. It could have been these other considerations that were going on. I know that Portugal and Spain largely respected the treaty, but the other European powers, as you alluded to, and indigenous nations, however, did not sign the treaty and generally ignored it. France was not in a great position and England weren't in great positions to exploit or to get into the voyages of discovery. They had to find some Italian or Genoese navigators and they did and they made some discoveries early on, but they weren't really able to make a lot out of these discoveries. And as far as the Holy Roman Empire goes or went at that time, it was really a patchwork of individual states. So they didn't really have the ability to garner 
a ton of resources to set sail. And they were mostly a land-based empire to begin with. So these major powers really weren't in a good spot to take on Portugal and Spain, who had such an early head start on them because they were the early adopters, as it were. So that begs the question, how was the treaty enforced? Because basically with Jacques Cartier and the French, they were thumbing their nose at the treaty. And then John Cabot and the British, they were thumbing their nose at the treaty. And basically the next decades, the other European countries were saying, we don't care about your treaty. I think Denmark never gave up the claim to Greenland. Probably nobody particularly cared what Denmark had to say, but I don't think they ever gave up claim. And that comes up more so later, I think, with the French and the English than it does with the Treaty of Tordesillas, because really by the time Martin Luther and the Reformation come, then that completely changes and none of them really care or respect the Treaty of Tordesillas as far as it goes with excommunication. The Protestant Reformation, that really took a lot of the sting out of the main excommunication idea. So we start to see that France and really every other country in Europe that wasn't involved in the treaty, they start to care less and less about the treaty. The indigenous people of North and South America, they still have a problem with this treaty to this day. And obviously, they didn't appreciate their lands getting carved up by two countries on the other side of the planet. We also have the issue of the Norse claims, uh, really Denmark, that had a claim to particularly Greenland. Now, we all know from Mark's podcast about the discoveries uh, by the Vikings much earlier, but Greenland comes into play because Greenland wasn't officially abandoned until sometime in the mid-1400s. Some new archaeology has come up that shows that Climate change may have played a part into Greenland's colony being not wiped out, but it's sort of fading out. But one thing that's interesting and that ties us all back together is some of the Spanish and the Portuguese conquests, such as the Central Atlantic Islands, the Madeiras, the Azores, etc., and their conquests into Africa seriously cut into the Greenland trade on ivory. The Greenlanders made most of their money by trading walrus ivory to Europe. The Spanish and the Portuguese at this time made big inroads into being able to trade the much cheaper and more abundant elephant ivory. So in a way, it could have, you know, if they hadn't started to make these inroads into trade into Africa, you may have seen a situation where the Greenlander colonies did carry on. That's hard to say, but Greenland would have definitely come into a lot more conflict if Spanish and Portuguese trade hadn't really devastated their economy than the Protestant Reformation comes, of which Denmark uh, fully embraced, it sort of takes Denmark completely out of the equation. But they have a legitimate claim to these areas that were new discoveries. Had they stayed Catholic, Denmark, they had the rights of first discovery to those lands. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. 
Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. What does the Portuguese-speaking modern nation of Brazil owe to this late 15th century document? Well, it's interesting. The second line, like we said, it bumped over the papal line of demarcation enough that it just sliced through the corner of Brazil. So that gave the Portuguese an inroad into colonizing Brazil, which would have really, under Intercatera line, but under almost most of the circumstances, all of North and South America are solidly inside of the Spanish realm of control. But that little slice of the later Treaty of Tordesillas line gave Portugal legitimate claim to that part of South America. And there's some other, it doesn't really play into North American history, but that's the reason why the Spanish could lay claim to the Philippines, because that line of demarcation didn't just cut through the Western Hemisphere, it goes all the way through the entire North-South circumference of the planet. So places that would normally be completely under the, what you would think should be under the Portuguese's area of control, like the Philippines, actually are under Spain's. Where in Spain is Tordesillas located? Tordesillas is just outside of the city of Valladolid, which um, may not be on everybody's radar, but it's the key point to Tordesillas is it wasn't terribly far from Portugal. It was really fairly much what you would say on the border, a couple of miles inside of the border from Portugal. Is that why the treaty was signed in that town? Yeah, really kind of neutral ground, uh, so to speak, so that they're still, you're, you know, you're talking about medieval times at this point. They could play some dirty politics. So it was a way to keep everybody honest on where they were having these negotiations. Where are the originals of the treaty kept? One copy is kept in the National Archives of Portugal in Lisbon, the Arquivo Nacional Torre do Tombo. That's their National Archives. The other copy is in the Arquivo General de Indias, the General Archive of the Indies in Seville, Spain. This is a place, if anybody out there is really interested in the discoveries of the New World, the Archive of the Indies in Seville is absolutely low to the gills with incredibly important documents. I think it holds all of Columbus's documents, Cortez's documents, the writer Cervantes. They're all in there. Well, that's actually where Christopher Columbus is buried, or part of him anyway. Yes, Seville became a really important launching point for these uh, voyages of the Spanish I'd love to get into that archive. I mean, I'm, obviously, they're never going to let me go and thumb through the treaty or Columbus's originals, but I'm sure they have a place where um, regular people can go through and look. Have you ever been to Spain or Portugal? Believe it or not, my family, we had been planning for a year 
to go on a, essentially a road trip through Portugal and Spain starting the second week of April in 2020. We were going to fly to Lisbon, visit some friends there. We were going to visit some of the key launching points of the Voyage of Discovery. We were going to stay in this part of Portugal called the Algarve, which actually Prince John II spent a lot of his time in this area. Then we were going to drive through the great towns of Southern Andalusia, Cadiz, Oelva, and stay in Seville and then drive north and pass through Badajoz, where one of the conferences that was after the Treaty of Tordesillas that helped smooth out a couple of the other details of the Treaty of Tordesillas was held in Badajoz. That trip got completely wiped out by the corona lockdowns of 2020. And uh, at this point, we don't have any plans to go back, but hopefully it'll happen soon. I've been to Spain and Portugal. I'm quite fond of Portuguese fado. It's a type of folk mm -hmm. music characterized by mournful tunes and lyrics. How about the home of the Pope, Steve? Have you ever visited Rome? And if so, when were you last in Vatican City? The last time I had a chance to visit Rome was in 2004, which is a shame. I'd like to go back. We stayed in a hotel that the parking lot of this hotel backed up to the walls of the Vatican. So that was really cool. So we, we went and did all the Vatican museums. Rome's one of those places you could stay there for years and never get a good grasp. Have you traveled to Rome? I visited Rome for the Great Jubilee in February 2000 at the start of the second millennium celebrations when Pope John Paul's health was visibly in decline. I entered St. Peter's Basilica through the Holy Door. Most of the time, the Holy Door is cemented shut. On the occasion of the Jubilee year, the Pope unsealed the door as a symbol of opening the Door of Grace. Pilgrims visiting to gain the Jubilee indulgence entered the Basilica through this special door, and so did I. Throughout most of the Jubilee year, long lines were queued up to enter the Holy Door. Rome is the eternal city, and... I guess I'm eternally grateful that I was able to spend some time there in the year 2000. We toured the Vatican museums. At that museum trip, winds up letting you off. Your last stop is at the Sistine Chapel. Honestly, by the time you wait in line to get into the Vatican museums and you walk through miles and miles of just the most amazing art you've ever seen in your life, your sensory overload by the time you get to the Sistine Chapel. And I think that that's probably Rome in a nutshell, is that you have to spend as much time there as you possibly can because the whole place, it's history overload, it's sensory overload, it's everything, culture overload. Well, I guess this is a fitting place to end today's discussion. It's been really interesting, and I really enjoyed spending time with you, Steve. Thank you for granting me the honor and privilege of sharing your wonderful audience. It's been a real pleasure, and I hope we get to do it again soon. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so very appreciative that you thought of having me on to talk about this fascinating subject. I appreciate getting a chance to talk with your audience, and definitely you'll be hearing from the both of us soon. Wonderful. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying visuals, including maps, charts, timelines, photos, illustrations, and diagrams. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride.
The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.